will feast at the table of the Lord. I will feast at the table of the Lord. I won't hunger anymore at his table. I will feast at the table. So today we're going to enjoy communion, celebrate communion together. And I think back to the first time I had communion, it was actually closed communion. What we did is uh, my church had the tradition of about, I think, every quarter or every half year. I forget now. But it was separate from Sunday morning so that the members could go Sunday night and enjoy communion together in the evening. And what I, there was a few things that were on my mind quite a bit. First of all, I was kind of scared of the alcohol because we re- used the real thing. So I was a bit concerned about its... Uh, influence over me. Obviously, I had no clue what was going on. Little thimbleful isn't going to send you to the next week, but here I thought, oh no, am I going to be all tempsy? Can I make it to my car afterwards? So there's that. And also to do it right. So what happened is we all sat down, we're in our pews this way, and the the bishop or whatever, and the pastors are up uh, on the stage, and then they take uh, their bread, break it, and uh, look it toward one another and nod, which meaning there's nothing between them and their fellow men or women. And then they take a sip of the cup, and we all shared one goblet. And then they would take their duke. I know you all want to say that. Duke. Go ahead. That was pretty good. Over here somewhere. Duke. All right. Duke, which is um, kind of a rag or a towel that you brought from home. So you take a sip, and you wipe it, and you pass it to the next person. Perfect. So I just remember it coming toward me, and I was just going, ah, I hope I get this right. So they nodded toward me, and I nodded back at them. They took it. They wiped it with their duke, passed it to me. I looked toward my person on my right and uh, did the nod and let the strong drink go down the hatch. And hey, praise the Lord, I can still drive home. But it was kind of interesting to me that I probably was a lot more consumed and concerned that day about the power of alcohol than I actually was about the power of the grace of communion. Or I was much more concerned about the power of do this right and what are people thinking of me, am I doing the right duke thing, than I was about the privilege of taking communion. So if you think about it, communion is kind of an odd thing that we do. If somebody has no clue what Christians do and they look through here and all of a sudden we're drinking from itsy bitsy thimbles and eating broken crackers, you got to wonder what's going on there. So today we want to explore uh, communion a little bit more and look toward connection in our communion experience. Let's pray before we do. Thank you, Lord. We get to experience communion and what it stands for to us. I pray that we be reminded and renewed this morning as we partake together and also as we just explore why we do this in the first place and hopefully we have a newness of life when it comes to our experience this morning. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians 11. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians 11 and we're going to start at verse 17. Paul is talking to the church in Corinth and I always thought it was pretty messed up that the Bible was in order that it was because you have Romans, which seems so solid, and then all of a sudden you get Corinthians, which is totally messed up. I go, why in the world would you add that book? Because, boy, that church is messed up. So if we're ever struggling here, we can take encouragement from Corinthians. They were pretty messed up, but the Jesus loved them too. 
So anyway, check this out, what some of the things that were happening, some of the things that seriously Paul had to address. Chapter 11, starting at verse 17. Paul says, in the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent, I believe it. No doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. So then, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper you eat, for when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains totally hungry and another one gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. For I receive, verse 23, for I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So then, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the whole body and blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves, therefore, they, before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. So in another version, that would be a bit more of a commentating version. Listen to this. It's kind of interesting. Regarding this next item, Paul says, I'm not at all pleased. I'm getting the picture that when you meet together, it brings out the worst side of you instead of your best. First, I get this report on your divisiveness, competing with each other and criticizing each other. I'm reluctant to believe it, but there it is. The best that, I, that can be said for it is that the testing process will bring truth into the open and confirm it. And then I find that you bring your divisions to worship. You come together, and instead of eating the Lord's Supper together, you bring in a lot of fruit from outside and make pigs of yourselves. Some are left out, some go home hungry. Others have to be carried out because they're too drunk to walk. I can't believe it. Don't you have your own homes to eat and drink in? Why would you stoop to desecrating God's church? Why would you actually shame God's poor? I never would have believed you would stoop to this, and I'm not going to stand by and say nothing. Let me go over again exactly what goes on in the Lord's Supper and why it's so centrally important. I received... My instructions from the master himself and passed them on to you. The master Jesus, on the night he was of his betrayal, he took bread and having given thanks, he broke and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this to remember me. After supper, he did the same thing with the cup. This cup is my, my blood, my new covenant with you. Each time you drink this cup, remember me. What you must solemnly realize is that every time you drink this bread, and every time you drink this cup, or eat this bread and drink this cup, you reenact in your words and actions the death of the master. You will be drawn back to this meal again and again until the master returns. You must never let familiarity breed contempt. I like that last line. In fact, some of the, the, the 
reformers of the Methodists, they figured every time they got together, they should be enjoying this. And he's probably right. But in our day and age, what we've done is we've kind of instituted um, the Lord's Supper a little more sporadically every month or sometimes every quarter because of that danger of familiarity breeding contempt. We're human. So going back to the power. So there I was as a kid thinking, oh, much more or much less about the power of the grace of communion and much more about the power of what alcohol might do or the power of what people think about me if I do this wrong. And when it comes to power, um, there's actually other forms or thoughts regarding the Lord's Supper. And one of them is actually transubstantiation. Great word, write it down. If you're playing Scrabble tonight, you will win, okay? Transubstantiation. So what in the world is that? In Greek, um, it, first of all, in Latin, it sounds almost the same as what I just said, and in Greek, it has almost the flavor of metamorphosis. So in according to the teaching of the Catholic Church, the change of the substance by which the bread and the wine offered in the sacrifice of the sacra- sacrament, or the ordinance of communion, of the Eucharist during the Mass become, in reality, the physical body and blood of Jesus the Christ. So here, this, the cup, would become the actual blood of Jesus Christ, and this, the actual body of Jesus Christ. But then there's another one. There's something called consubstantiation. And this doctrine is often held to contrast the doctrine of transubstantiation. So this is more of a Lutheran thing. They use, it, uh, uh, they use the term consubstantiation to describe their doctrine, but many reject it as not accurately reflecting the Eucharistic doctrine of Martin Luther himself. So in England, in the late 14th century, there was a political and religious movement known as Lollardy. Among much broader goals, the Lollards affirmed a form of cons- consubstantiation, that the Eucharist remained physically bread and wine, or here, crackers and juice, while becoming spiritually the body and blood of Christ. Okay? So they're looking at the power of Christ on this stuff right here. And I'm here today to think, I think, no, in fact, I know that I think Jesus is much more interested in using his power to transform you instead of a cracker and instead of some juice. What do you think? Okay, so that's what this is today. Is this, we don't call this a sacrament because sacrament would say that it's more of a power for salvation, but this is more an ordinance, something that we do do, and we will do this until Christ returns because this is what we're commanded to do. This helps us remember, and this helps us proclaim the Lord's death, sacrifice, and rising again from the grave to give us new life. So he doesn't want to transform this stuff. This is a symbol. He wants to transform you. He wants to transform me. So, in that thought, what in the world is all this practice about? First of all, I said it already, it's to remember. Verses 23, 25. Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, broke it. When he had given thanks, this is my body, which is for you. Do this to remember me or in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. So Paul is describing the Last Supper, and of course, and interestingly, at the Last Supper, he did a couple things. He's actually, if you can think about this, they're having the Last Supper before a really important event, 
and on a very important event, the Passover, right? So the Passover was part of the Old Testament law. It fulfilled a purpose for those who lived under the Old Testament law. And it prefigured or shadowed the Lord's Supper. There's a lot of foreshadowing and shadow stuff in Scripture. What's it there for? So we learn about the concept of shadows from Paul's words in Hebrews. Hebrews 10.1 says, For the law having a shadow of good things to come, not the very image of those things. There's a few th- things like that. Even in Corinthians, the love chapter, it talks a little bit about uh, shadows or about poor reflections, but one day. So one commentator says this about it. From this text, we learn that those divine services under the Old Testament were shadowy images of divine services that would be established under the new covenant covenant when it was coming. As such, they possess the, the stamp of divine approval. It wasn't our idea. It was God's idea. God did not establish those institutions under the Old Testament law just for the sake of something to do. It's not like he was bored and said, ah, why don't we do this? Nope. He established them as shadowy images of what he had in mind for the coming age. God just did not establish something for the sake of doing it, but rather he had a plan, a design, and a purpose for this thing. Such things would be fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So to give you a little picture, and this is fantastic narrative, we're talking Exodus 12. So put your thinking caps on and picture this, okay? So here we have the story of the Israelites under the thumb of the Egyptians, and things are not going well because they're, they're building their kingdom on the backs of the Israelites, and now the Israelites apparently have too much time on their hands because they are growing in number and having lots of babies. So suddenly the Egyptians are going, whoa, what is going on? So they had to increase the, the veracity and how poorly they treated them and also start killing baby boys. If you know a baby boy that's being born, kill it, they're saying to the people that were helping birth these babies. So in Exodus 12, we come to this incredible portion of Scripture, verse 1. The Lord says to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month, the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with the nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. So right off the bat, we see a few things. First of all, uh, the perfect lamb. You're looking for a lamb that's not just, meh, any lamb will do. We're not talking a Cain kind of sacrifice. We're talking an Abel kind of sacrifice back in Genesis. Okay? So you're looking for the perfect sacrifice, the one that'll make you the most money at the market. That's the one. Take that one. And now you take it and you really pay attention to that one. And I think within that, it'll also prove in that short time if that is the right one, if it's healthy, any blemish. And that's also the one that you're really going to protect because you're giving your best to the master, to God. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be a year old male without defect. And you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month when all the members of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. Here's where it gets a bit gross. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames <coughs> excuse me, of their houses where they eat the lambs. That same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire 
along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw. He would not have to tell me that twice. Do not eat the meat raw or boiled in water, but roasted over a fire with the head, legs, and internal organs. Verse 10, do not leave any of it until morning. If some is left in the morning, you must burn it. This is how you're to eat it. With your cloak, I love this, with your cloak tucked into your belt, with your Nike sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I'm going to pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both uh, people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be assigned for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over or pass over you, okay? Pass on by. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day that you are to commemorate for the generations to come. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. So this one guy called York, he points out resemblances here. He says, the first notable resemblance between Passover and the Lord's Day is both of them are established by God. They're divine institutions. Secondly, they're both celebrated the night before it's going to happen. So I wonder if instead of sitting here and taking this long time of thinking, you know how we always do communion, we sit and we think and we, in the old days we used to sing 10 hymns with four, four verses each, right? We sit and think and sit and think. That doesn't look like Passover. Passover, get up. Tuck in your cloaks. Look toward the exit. Put your running shoes on and get ready. Kind of interesting. Kind of interesting. And here, they're supposed to be ready to go at any time. How about us? Is there not this overarching theme of Christ is coming back any time, so get ready to go? Right? So there is this haste also, not only in the Passover, but also when we come here, not only are we remembering, but we better get ready. Put your running shoes on. That means you're looking toward the exit and you have a hope that's within you and you're surrounded by a community that does not have that hope and needs to hear about that hope, right? It is, in essence, an exodus. Having this stamp of divine authority, they possess the characteristics of unchangeableness. So both the Passover and communion, very important institution. So Jesus interpreted something old. So here, Exodus 12 describes the first Passover, which included a lamb and announced to the whole community, as we just all read. And they also used unleavened bread, showing toward a purity. And they also ate it with bitter herbs. You guys, it's very interesting in our memories. We like to sometimes remember the good stuff that we've done. Like, let me tell you, Helen, about all the cool things I've done. But when it comes to God's faithfulness to me, and something bad happens to me today. God, where are you? I can't believe I'm still struggling with this health issue. And he's going, well, do you remember last year when you came down with that horrible flu and your temperature was 104? No, what are you talking about? We don't tend to remember the amazing things God does. We tend to remember the amazing things that Steve does or that you do personally. We're pretty, we're not very good at remembering stuff like that. So we can look back at the Israelites and go, wow, these guys are dumb. 
Because, I mean, God has done so many powerful things. When you think of the Exodus, when you think of the plagues, when you think of his provision over 40 years of wandering, you're going, how can you forget his faithfulness? And you're worshiping a molten calf, a golden calf? So you can, we can scoff at them, but I think we kind of do the same. I can easily forget the faithfulness of God. I have to be reminded. And that's part of the reason why we have this right here. It's to be reminded. And one of the ways they did that is they had the bitter herbs with their meal, right? Nobody likes bitter herbs. But I think that was a reminder. Like, it wasn't so great in Egypt. You guys, do you remember when they're eating manna and and quail and all that stuff in the wilderness? What was one of their complaints? Ugh, if only we were back in Egypt, we could have all those yummy spices and banana loaf and all that stuff, right? And they're just going, are you kidding me? Some of your relatives are dead. Some of you have scars on your back from being whipped half to death. But they didn't, so they have bitter herbs. So they go, oh, that's, oh yeah, that was bitter time in Egypt. Because we're kind of dense. We don't remember that stuff. So there's a whole lot of cool symbolism in all this stuff. And the whole thought of the angel of death coming through Egypt my friends, if somebody was there going, you know, honey, I just don't feel really all that good today. I, I, whatever I ate didn't agree with me. So why don't we do this whole blood over the doorpost? Let's do it next week. Because, yeah. Well, they would have ended up with a, a dead child in their house. There was a haste, hastiness about it. There was an obedience about it. In faith, they stepped out, slaughtered the animal, went by the instruction given to them by Moses and Aaron and put the blood over the doorpost and the angel of death came through. When it saw it, it passed over there and went into a house or went into a dwelling where they did not display their faith. And there was huge mourning in Egypt that day. But here, we have the perfect lamb. God sends not just like he has a dozen sons and like, ah, He doesn't do much. I'm going to send that. He takes his perfect son, Jesus Christ. Sends Jesus Christ, the perfect lamb of God, to die on the cross. Broken body. Blood spilt. For you and for me. This is incredible. This is something that you cannot do on your own. I don't care who you are, how many connections you have. There is nothing within your power to gain this favor with God except for what Christ has done on the cross. Except for what Christ has done on the cross. Jesus instituted the whole Lord's Supper and it's a ceremony that quickly came to be celebrated even much more regularly with the church than the annual Passover. So there's a story of during the Vietnam War where a young, sharp West Point grad was sent over to lead a group of recruits into battle. He did his job really well and trying his best to keep all of his guys from ambush and from death. But one night, they had been under horrible attack. Everybody was able to get away from the attack except one guy. One guy was left back in the trench and everybody knew it because he was wailing and crying and in horrible agony and pain. The soldier left behind was horribly wounded. In fact, it probably wouldn't take long before he would die. So now he's got this ethical decision. Do I risk some of me, some of my guys, or what? Do I just leave him there? He's probably going to die anyway. After a little bit of thought, 
They all realize that there's probably a chance of whoever goes back to help him is going to be dead. This soldier, this West Point grad, decides as his lieutenant to go back and to help this guy. Well, he finally gets him into safety, but just before he does, he's shot and killed himself. So the rescued man returns back to the States, and the lieutenant's sad parents heard that this rescue guy was in their vicinity, so they were really anxious to meet him, seeing, like, tell us about our son, and we just want to meet you, and I've got to wonder what you're doing with your life and all that stuff. Um, they wanted to know this young man whose life was spared at such a great cost to them. When their honored guest arrived, they were so excited, but they opened to the door to an obviously drunk character. He was rowdy and obnoxious. He told nasty off-collar jokes and showed no gratitude at all for the sacrifice of the man who died to save him. The grieving parents did their best uh, to be nice, to be hospitable, but it was absolutely unrewarded when it comes to their efforts. Finally, when he left, the husband closed the door and the wife just collapsed into his arms with tears and cried to think that our precious son had to die for somebody like that. That's what Jesus did. That's what Jesus did. While we were yet sinners, while we were yet drunkards, while we were yet greedy, while we were yet selfish, Christ died for us. God sent his son. That's what we are to remember as we come to communion. Christ died while we're yet sinners. But not only that, and Pastor Ken's great at reminding me of this, communion, we're pretty good at thinking, at being very solemn, but Ken reminds me lots. Communion is to celebrate. Communion is to celebrate. And hey, I'm with him. It brings joy. It brings togetherness, a realization that something is accomplished which is impossible for us to attain on our own. So you guys, it was absolutely, I'll take a commercial break here, it was absolutely a privilege to have all these churches from the, uh, from the lower mainland and from the, the island come on over here. Folks, we got Oren to set up, Oren and Christy set up their cool background downstairs. And then, like I said before, we got Tennyson to lead worship. And Tennyson does a great job, but Tennyson does a great job of equipping the saints to worship. His team, they're equipped. But the difference often between Tennyson and many other people is that he's not performing. He's not trying to be Mr. Professional Performance Guy. He's trying to do it well to the glory of God. So when churches out here are looking up here and they see the folks up here, including the ones that were here this morning, they hopefully in their conversation, and many people have conversation with Tennyson, they realize it's doable. See, because I was hoping that not, not only would we have a great conference, but we'd have a conference when they come to White Rock that they see that things can be done well, we can inspire them, and it's doable. So they walk downstairs, and people go, oh, maybe you haven't been downstairs. Have you seen the, the Sunday school setup? If you have not, that's your assignment. It's down now, but come next time, and right when you get here, go downstairs. The setup is phenomenal. And the setup, I think they change it every three months. And it takes some time, but not crazy amount of time. And for us Mennonites out there, it's not even all that expensive. 
right? So we had people going downstairs, taking pictures. We had people having conversations with Oren, a ton of them, looking in the nursery and stuff like that. And to me, it was exciting because we get to celebrate as the church because is this my church? Is this church of Steve? Okay, thank you. Some of you are, oh, I'm not sure. No, it's not, okay? In fact, there's a church down the road, Grace Point, that's about four or 500. Whoa, now that's, it must be a really good church because it's double our size. But never mind them, Peace Portal, that's like over a thousand. Fabulous. The village has millions, right? But you know what, you guys? That's not Mark Clark's church. This is not Steve Dirksen's church. That is not Scott Dickey's church. This is Christ's church. And all of us need to be reminded of that. This is Christ's church. All of these churches, we are part of it. And we celebrate together. And now we were just hoping that some of these smaller churches on the islands, you can become discouraged. That I'm hoping that they grab some kind of unity and celebratory details that they can bring back to their congregation and be encouraged and realize that they can do it. Why I say that too sometimes, even what we've done here, is when you come here for a while, you don't notice that patch of carpet missing anymore. Or you don't notice that the paint was never done over here or those holes were never filled. Or you don't realize sometimes that that smell in the basement probably shouldn't smell that way, right? So imagine that. You're at home and you've invited people to your home. And you just go, yeah, I know. We got to get that carpet patched up someday. Yeah, that smell, don't mind. Nobody here does not care about presenting their home well, right? We care about the smells, about the carpet being ripped up or missing and all that stuff. Well, how about the church? Folks, the Lord's going to do his work. But we did a lot of this stuff because we want to remove obstacles people come through the door and they go, look at this art. Wow, these greeters, they're very friendly. Wow, I can't believe they have pretty good coffee. And you know, so it just goes on and on and they see how much we care about our nursery and they go, hmm, I bet you if they care that much about their nursery, they probably care about me. Have you ever been to a restaurant where you're ready to eat and then you go to the washroom and you go, oh, gross, they never clean this washroom. Well, I got to wonder what the kitchen's like. It's the same principle here. Your interaction with people, brand new people, and their interaction with even the facilities is important. So we try our best to give a good presentation because we want to develop a relationship so that we can tell them about Jesus Christ. So it is important. So anyway, that was a side note. Going back to the whole communion thing and community thing, in verse 26, when it talks about celebrating, it says, For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So we have a remembrance already, but now we have proclaiming. We have looking back, but now we have looking forward. When we share communion, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Master Cato, in one of his books called uh, Six Hours on Friday, he tells a story of a missionary to Brazil who discovered a tribe of Indians in a remote part of the jungle. They lived near a large river, and the tribe was in huge need of medical assistance. A contagious disease was ravaging the population, and people were dying daily. So the hospital wasn't that too far away, but here you have the tribe. There you have the hospital, 
And guess what's in the middle? A river, an evil river, so they think. They think evil spirits reside in that river. So this missionary makes his way across the river and he's telling him, your disease, what's killing everybody here, it's treatable. You just got to go over there to that hospital. And they're going, uh-uh. So he says, no, you can do it. So he goes and he just plays in the river like this. And they're going, so finally he goes right into the river all the way up to his waist and he frolics in there for a while, splashing, and he even washes his face. Face, And he goes, see, check this out, I'm, I'm okay. And they're still not even tempted to get in that river. So finally, he just dives right down into the belly of the river and he goes right under and he goes right to the other side and he splashes right up and the drips or the drops of water just splashing right off him and he fist pumps, he goes, yes, you know? And all of a sudden they look and they go, yes, And they too realize that through that victory of going right through the river, I guess if he's okay, I can do it too. And they start to make their way through that river. They start to make their way through the river into life. You guys, that's exactly what Christ did. He told people of his day that they need not fear the river of death, but they wouldn't believe. He touched a dead boy and called him back to life Still didn't believe. He whispered life into the body of a dead girl and the same re- got the same result. He let a dead man, or he let a dead man spend four days rotting and smelling up a tomb and then called him out and the people still wouldn't believe. So finally he entered the, the, the river of death, came out on the other side and this is why we celebrate communion. And every time we come to the Lord's Supper, this is what we celebrate. He's done it for us. We are here to rejoice at both his death and resurrection, and make this proclamation until he returns. Verse 27, 28. Not only do we remember and celebrate or rejoice, we repent. Repent is turning the other way, turning around. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats and the bread and drinks of the cup. So it's a great opportunity to examine ourselves, to take inventory, to allow the piercing gaze of the Holy Spirit to reveal something that's not right in our lives and to make it right. Be that between you and God or you and your spouse or you and your community, you and your friendships. Cleansing, daily cleansing is important. In 1818, one out of six women who had children died of something called childbirth fever, 1818. So a doctor's daily routine back then started in the dissecting room where he performed autopsies, and from there he made his rounds to examine expectant mothers. No one even thought to wash their hands, at least not until a doctor named Ignaz Semmelweis began to practice strict hand washing. He was the very first doctor to associate a lack of hand washing with this huge fatality. So the doctor only lost one in 50, and yet his colleagues laughed at him. Once he says, childbirth fever is caused by decomposed material conveyed to a wound. I have shown how it can be prevented. I have proven all that I've said, but while we talk, 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 women are dying, he says. I'm not asking for anything world-shaking, only that you wash your hands. Yet, virtually no one believed him. 
Virtually no one believed him. Communion is a time to confess our sins and to get right with God. Regularly wash our souls before him, and it's essential because failure to confess our sins will result in a spiritual infection, somebody says. Failure to confess our sins will result in a spiritual infection that will hinder our ability in our spiritual journey, that will hinder our ability to reach our potential in Jesus Christ. So today I invite you to repent or to change your mind about some direction in your life if the Lord or Holy Spirit is putting a finger on something in your life. When we read the Word of God, when we look in the mirror of the Bible or our devotions or even how our spouse is reacting to something, what do we do with that new information? Do we bury it or do we take it and ask to be changed? So not only remember, rejoice, and repent, but also now he's calling us in verse 29, getting really meddling here, is to reconcile. For if anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the whole body, the Lord, eats and drinks judgment on himself. For we are all part of one body, the church of Jesus Christ. So if you're sitting here and you're choked with God, or if you're sitting here and you're choked with the person beside you, we've got something to deal with. Reconciliation is a big deal. And at the table, when we partake here of, this, of these elements, doesn't matter if you push a broom for a living or if you're a CEO of some incredibly successful company. It doesn't matter if you've immigrated here or if you were born here many years ago. It doesn't matter if you're white or black or whatever kind of skin you have. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your culture. We're the same when it comes to the table of Christ. Stories told of the Duke of Wellington remained to take communion at his parish church. And a very, very poor and smelly man went up to the opposite aisle and, and reaching the communion table, knelt down close by the side of the Duke. Well, and you can imagine, the Duke on this side and then some guy that's uh, over here. Well, somebody kind of grabbed his elbow, this poor guy, grabbed his elbow and then whispered just saying, maybe if you could just hold back to the side until the Duke is done. Well, the eagle eye and the quick ear of the great commander, the duke, caught the meaning of that touch and probably the whisper, and he grabbed the old man's hand, he clasped his hand, and held him to prevent his rising. And in a reverential but distinct undertone, the duke, the great commander, said to this poor guy, do not move. We are equal here. Do not move. We are equal. You see, folks, the table of Holy Communion is Christ's table. It's not White Rock Community Church table. It's not the Evangelical Free Church of Canada table. It's not the Village table. It's not Peace Portal table. It's not a meal in the clubhouse for members only. It's open to all regardless of age or church membership. The table is open to anyone who seeks to respond to Christ's love and seeks to lead a new life of peace and love. Christ invites you to take the bread and the cup that proclaim his loving sacrifice of love for everyone here. So I encourage you as uh, we're going to give opportunity for you to come up and grab the elements, that you calm your spirit, that you think about all this stuff, that this is a time to remember. Remember what Christ has done. 
It's a time to rejoice and realize that we get to proclaim this freedom in Christ. It's also a time to, to repent, and if there's something that's not quite right, commit yourself to making it right. And it's also a time to reconcile. If there's something wrong between you and a neighbor or you and the Lord, take the time to make it right. And if you're not in that space today, it's also okay not to take communion. I've done that a few times. If you just quite can't quite grab onto it or if you're still working out the details with the good Lord, that's a good thing. I don't think it's good if you just don't take communion and don't work on it. But if you're just not quite at that place yet and you're committed to working on it, this is a good thing. But I'm going to ask the, the Reverend Ken to come on up here and you come on up after you're ready. Take communion and bring it back to your seats, please. And then at that point, I'll give you further instructions so that we can take it together. The Passover. Tuck in your cloak and your belt. Put on your running shoes. Look toward the door. The perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I think there's a perfect correlation there that, you know what, even when you take this stuff, he says, like the Israelites, put all that on and be ready. Be ready for the Exodus. So I'm going to ask you to do something a little odd today. I'm going to ask you to stand up with me. If you're able to stand where you are, and I want you to turn around and look toward the exit. Okay? So I'm going to ask you a few questions, and in your heart, you can, you, can, you can answer this in your own heart. Are you ready to flee the bondage? Are you ready to leave the, the grip of the olden day Egyptians? Are you ready to run from the chains of your old life? Are you ready to exodus through, through those doors today and in the power of remembrance, remember what Christ has done for you? Are you ready to do that and to proclaim this kind of freedom, this lack of bondage that is available to each and every one of us? If that is your desire today, if you want to live free in Christ, if you want to take this and celebrate, if you want to proclaim freedom to the captive out there in your world and in our communities, if you want to do that, let us take together the bread and the cup. Let's do that now. Oh, Lord, we, we're just so thankful for the body. These symbols the symbol of your body, the symbol of the juice that it symbolizes your blood. And today, we look and we take it as we're staring at the exit. Because today, all of us want to be like the folks in the exodus and leave behind our bondage. We want to leave behind the garbage that's holding us back from our potential. And Lord, not only that, we want to scurry toward that exit and reach our potential in Jesus Christ. There is a world, there's co-workers, there's family members, there's community. They don't know Jesus and they're constantly living in the bondage of fear, bondage of poor relationships, bondage of not knowing their potential in Christ, bondage of alcoholism, drugs, whatever it may be. And today, Lord, we want to look at that exit and we want to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. We remembered this morning and now, Lord, give us the power to be your people of proclamation to a world that's hurting, 
And Father, you saved us and so forth. We go from here and we ask that you give us also the power of proclamation so that we can present to others the gospel of freedom, the lack of bondage. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. table.